Well, I want to uh, invite you to come on back in and grab your seats as we continue with our teaching time together this morning. Uh, my name's Brad. I'm part of the teaching and leadership team here at Jericho. And as you see from this picture on the screens, in our culture, we are enamored with the courtroom and the drama of the courtroom, the scales of justice hanging in the balance. We like the courtroom uh, as this place of answers, of definitive answers. And we use phrases even like, well, I'm going to have my day in court, meaning that if someone has wronged us, that we are going to see this as a place to seek justice and retribution and make sure that uh, all of this can be done in a way that makes sense to us. And many of us have already probably seen too many movies or TV shows about the courtroom uh, and as a place of theater or as a place of drama. And so I think about, you know, even now on uh, TV, the People versus O.J. Simpson or uh, Judge Judy, right? Or uh, To Kill a Mockingbird, you know, that courtroom scene with Atticus Finch uh, or the 1992 classic movie, A Few Good Men, where they say, you want answers? I think I'm entitled to answers. You want answers? I want the truth. You can't handle the truth. We love drama in the courtroom. So it's intriguing to me, as I read through this uh, section of the book of Isaiah that we've been studying in the spring, chapters 40 to 66, that over and over and over again, the courtroom is actually referred to as a scene or set up for us as a way of understanding this kind of conversation that is going on between God and Isaiah and the people. And it's not only there once or twice, it's there more than six times is this language of the courtroom being referred to, cross-examination or marshalling your case, all of those things. Because the people of Isaiah's day, you remember, are weary they're downtrodden. They're oppressed. They've been exiled to a land far from home, and they begin to wonder and say, maybe God's forgotten about us. Maybe God doesn't care for us. Maybe God's just distant. He's off doing something, and he's become busy and has forgotten in some way about our situation. Maybe God isn't powerful enough to stop these bad things that happened to us. And so similar to you and I, if we had those experiences, and some of you have, you begin to ask questions. And the people of Isaiah's day are no different. They want answers. They want the truth. And so Isaiah imagines for us a courtroom sequence where the people get to bring God in and put God on trial. And Isaiah recounts this in Isaiah chapter 41, verse 1, where it says, bring your strongest arguments. Come on now and speak. The court is ready for your case. Or in chapter 45, verse 21, where it says, consult together, come and argue your case, decide what you're going to say. In his famous book, C.S. Lewis wrote, God in the Dock. And he uses that same kind of framework from the courtroom of what would it look like if we put God on trial, we put him in the dock, and had opportunity to ask questions about life. It's a bit funny to imagine 
But if you go there with me for a minute, picture the poor bailiff in the courtroom. Place your right hand on the Bible, please. Do you swear to tell the whole truth and nothing but the truth, so help you God? Gives a bit of a new meaning to that phrase. And the people of Judah then come and they present their opening argument in the case against God. And they say, Your Honor, we, the exiled people of Judah, feel that uh, there has been a grievous breach of contractual trust in our relationship between God. We call God to the witness stand and we need to have our day in court. We need answers. We need the truth as to what's going on here. And they bring their charge against God. And their first charge is this, that bad things have happened to us, and therefore, God is guilty of contractual negligence. That's their first charge. We talked a little bit about this last week. The people of Judah start in with their questions from lived experience, and they say, let the record show, we trusted you, God. I mean, you let the city of Jerusalem be burned to the ground. You let our children and our families suffer at the hands of not one, but two invading armies. And now here we are, sitting off in Babylon. Who knows when we'll return? We're exiles from our land, people without a country, and we trusted you. What do you have to say about that, God? Answer the question. And silence descends on the courtroom, and the witness rises from the bench, and Isaiah pictures this from chapter 40 all the way through chapter 66 to the end of the book, that God is now prepared to give a set of answers to these questions that he's being asked. These questions that vex the people of Isaiah's day and that trouble us as well. But God doesn't begin his defense with a list of rationales for why he did things the way that he did. It's not a direct answer in some ways. As a rebuttal, God presents a little bit of a history lesson. He lays some groundwork that helps the people of Isaiah's day and us as well understand and place those questions and the trial in a right context. So it's as if God starts to give his defense by saying, well, before I give you an answer to your questions, uh, let's just review the case file, shall we? Let's just go over a couple of groundwork pieces uh, that I'd like to discuss with you. Before I give you an answer, let me remind you of a few things. And the first thing that God reminds them of is, says, you know what? My power and my purposes are not negated by evil. Just because bad things have happened to you does not mean that somehow this caught me unaware. We talked about this Last week, look in Isaiah chapter 44, verses 6 to 8. The text says, this is what the Lord says. Israel's king and redeemer, the Lord of heaven's army. I am the first and I am the last. There is no other God who is like me. If there's anyone else, let them step forward to prove to you their power. Let them do as I have done since ancient times when I established a people and explained its future. I told you what was going to happen, God says. Do not tremble. Do not be afraid. Did I not proclaim my purposes for you long ago? You 
are my witnesses. Is there any other God other than me? No, there is no other rock, no other place to put your trust and confidence that's solid, not one. See, God goes over his relationship with the people. And he says to them, "Uh, let me take you back to the very beginning where I created the earth and that I sustain it by my mighty power. So let's get one thing straight. This is not a question of weakness or inability on my part, says God. Furthermore, I called you and I set you apart for my purposes. We have a defined and clear relationship. I formed you. I named you. I have a covenant with you. I care deeply for you. And so let the record show that it was I who rescued you from slavery in Egypt. It was I who gave you a land in which to live. Let the record show again and again that my love and care for you has been constant and unrelenting. So God's power and his purposes are not negated by the presence of evil in their day or in ours, in their lives or in ours. And God continues and says, let the record also show that if we're going to talk about the contract or the relationship or negligence in this in any way, it is not me who has grown tired or weary. So it's almost as if then God calls the people as witnesses in Isaiah 44. All right, now I'm going to flip this, and instead of uh, you putting me in the dock, I'm going to put you in the dock and ask you to testify. So the people get put in the dock, and God says, let's talk about faithfulness to the covenant, shall we? You see, it's not me who's been unfaithful. It's you. So here, God exposes a weakness of their argument. That in this relationship that God has called them into, this relationship with God has been impacted by their choice and the choices that they have made and the way in which they have treated other people. So the vertical dimension of their relationship with God has been negatively impacted both by the way in which they've thought about and treated God and also by the way in which they've thought about and treated people around them, by their choices in that. So in chapter 44... Verses 6 to 8, God again says, I have made Israel for myself. Someday they will honor me before the whole world. But, dear family of Jacob, let's just remind ourselves of this. You have refused to ask me for help. You have grown tired of me, O Israel. And you have burdened me with your sins and with your faults. I'm just, I'm wearied by them. God says. God reminds them and says, you know what? My desire in our relationship was that you would demonstrate to the peoples of the earth my goodness and my love. You would demonstrate a way of life together that other people would look at and find attractive and say, what is it that marks those people as unique from all of the other ways in which the human society could operate. But you have utterly failed at this task. You have heaped up sin upon sin upon sin. And all through the book of Isaiah, Isaiah lists the specific uh, notations or the specific ways in which the people 
in Isaiah's day have wearied God with their sins. He said, let's go over this. You, you have sacrificed your own children to worthless idols. You have pursued alliances with other nations when I specifically told you not to do it. You have dishonored and in fact killed my messengers, the prophets. You have treated people around you with complete contempt, particularly those who are vulnerable in your society, people who are poor. And you have focused instead on accumulating all of this wealth for yourself. And so you think that you've just been completely faithful to this contract. But let the record show all of the ways in which you have refused to ask for my help in time of need, and you have burdened me with your sins and your faults. All the while... Isaiah says, coming into my temple and pretending to worship me with joy and gladness and saying, oh, how much we love you, God. God says, really? Let's talk about how you treat your neighbors. Coming to the temple and singing songs, lifting hands, offering sacrifices. And the challenge is that their relationship with God has been impacted negatively by their, by their choices. And see, the people have begun to believe that they can sin and totally flagrantly disobey God in one area of their life, and then just wall that off and say, well, that doesn't impact other areas of my life. Certainly doesn't impact my relationship with God. How I treat the poor, I don't see how that has anything to do with how God thinks about me or how I think about God. But see, the people in Isaiah's day are not the only ones that can fall into this trap. I can remember... Uh, in my life when I was in high school and I was un, in an unhealthy relationship. And we were way offside, way offside in terms of so many aspects of that relationship, but particularly in physical intimacy. And there I was, up at the front, leading worship and being on missions teams all the time and playing the part of a good Christian. And I was living in such a place of deception. I had just walled this entire relationship off in my heart and in my mind. And thought, well, I don't see how that could hurt my relationship with God or other people. But see, friends, when we deceive ourselves and we think that's just a little sin, that's not a big deal, though. It is a big deal. It's going to impact your relationship with God, which is why the scripture continuously calls us back to places of repentance and acknowledging our behavior as that which displeases and offends a holy and just, and righteous God. See, in any relationship that you have, your choices in the horizontal realm impact your vertical relationship with God. In 1 Peter, there's an instruction that says, you know, if you're going to pray and talk to God, you need to make sure that, you know, you have a right relationship with your spouse beforehand. Otherwise, I'm not going to listen to what it is you have to say. You're going to go make that right before you come. Jesus talks about this. Before you come to make a gift at the altar, you need to make sure that you are reconciled with anyone who has wronged you or whom you have wronged. And so our vertical relationship with God is impacted by our choices and by our horizontal relationships with others. Isaiah goes over and over and over this again. In Isaiah chapter 59, 1 to 4, God says, listen, here's the core problem. 
It's not that my arm is too weak to save you or my ear too deaf to hear you call. It is your sins who have cut you off from God. Because of your sins, he has turned away and will not listen anymore. Your hands are the hands of murderers. Your fingers are filthy with sin. Your lips are full of lies. Your mouth spews out corruption. No one cares about being fair and honest. People's lawsuits are based on lies. They conceive evil deeds. They give birth to sin. And so God says to the people, if we're talking about searching for the truth in this, let's be clear. It is not me who has been unfaithful to the covenant. It's you. But even in your unfaithfulness, I have loved you with an everlasting love. See, my arm is not too weak to save, God says. It's not me who's been unfaithful. But eventually, the people wandered so far and with such purpose and defiant intent in their heart to reject God, God said to them, fine, you want to live a life of disobedience? I will leave you to that. So here we come to our first of four sidebars in this legal case. So a sidebar is a, a point in the courtroom where you step outside of the proceedings and you just make like a notation or observation on what is happening. You kind of approach the bench. So sidebar number one, if we look at this, is interesting to think about than the people's perspective on their suffering. The people are saying to themselves, oh, God, we're suffering because you've been unfaithful. And God's saying to the people, well, actually you're suffering because of your own stupidity and your own ignorance and your own sinfulness. And this is where it's important for us to note that on suffering, there is both just suffering and also unjust suffering. So there's suffering that is just. In, or, in other words, we are receiving the due measure or punishment for the things that we have done. And then there's suffering in our world that is just unjust. But the problem is, we like to categorize those things and make them quite simple. And so we tend to go through life and think about, well, generally, good people will be rewarded and bad people will be punished. So therefore, if something is negative going on in your life, I wonder if maybe God is punishing that person for something. Which might be true, but it might also not be true at all. You might have done something wrong that God is actually bringing his corrective discipline into your life. But one of the witnesses of the book of Job is that suffering can be both just and unjust. Job did not cause in anything in his behavior is righteous for things to come into his life. And so we have to be very careful about confusing those two things, just suffering and unjust suffering, or making broad and sweeping statements about the causes of suffering or the causes of something bad that's happening in someone's life. Some suffering is simply the result of evil being present in our world. And it is calloused, and it is unthinking, and it is, in fact, arrogant to make blanket statements that because something bad is happening to someone, that that is an evidence of God's judgment on them for sinful behavior. But pastors and politicians do this all the time. Think about a natural disaster that happens, and then 
we all think, who's going to be the first person to stand up and say something totally stupid about why that is God's judgment on those people over there for doing this or that? Think of the arrogance that it takes to make that statement. That you or I would know beyond a shadow of doubt with just deep certainty that the cause of that suffering was because of that action in some way. And think of what that does to the people then who experience suffering. 1 Peter chapter 1 talks about, you know, you can suffer for doing good. Doesn't mean that all people who are suffering are suffering because they are been walked in faithful obedience to God and they're just being persecuted, but it also doesn't mean that everyone who's suffering has been disobedient to God. It's cruel to make that assumption and arrogant. Because to think that you have the capacity to assess someone's moral fortitude or spiritual obedience is a little bit of crazy talk. I like the way that Tim Keller puts this in his excellent book, and I would highly recommend this book to you, Walking with God Through Pain and Suffering. I think it's one of the best books written on the topic. Keller says this, It is both futile and inappropriate to assume that any human mind could comprehend all of the reasons that God might have for any instance of pain or sorrow, let alone for all of evil. It's futile and inappropriate. So let's not go there. Well, we can't get into a full theodicy today. A theodicy is a reasoned argument for the existence of God in the face of systemic evil and personal evil and personal suffering. But for now, let's just put a pin in that and let's say simply that the presence of suffering in our world and the existence of God are not mutually exclusive or mutually contradictory categories or statements. Because that's what the people are charging God with and saying, because something bad happened to us, you can't be trusted. But that's not true. So that's their first charge, that God has unjustly allowed his people into captivity. And God says, let's just check the record on that, shall we? And then their second charge is not about what happened to them, but how it happened to them and by whose hand it happened to them. So the people go back and say, okay, okay, fair enough, fair enough. Let's put you on the trial for a different topic then, God. God, when the invading armies came against us and overthrew the city of Jerusalem, they were really mean about it, like it was bad, which is fair to say. So their question for God is, God, how could you use such a secular, godless nation and people who are just plain heathens to do your work? So they charge God with their second charge and say, God, you are guilty by association with these people, using, using unholy instruments to do your work. Now, this isn't a new accusation, and it certainly isn't limited to their day and time. Some people have a hard time believing that anyone could, God could use someone who doesn't love God to accomplish something in the world. And see, what was even more confusing for the people in Isaiah's day was the language that God used to describe Babylon and the language that God used to describe the people of Assyria that came against them. God said to them, these are my instruments. These are my chosen vessels to do my work. 
I have stretched out my hand and I have given them this assignment. I have strengthened their hands for it. I have called them and this is their assignment from me. And then the people go, but, but God, how could you give someone like that an assignment to come against people like us? Why, why, would, you, why would you anoint them for that work? That's like ministry language. But there's something intriguing to note here, that God doesn't give, God did give the people of Babylon a task to met out judgment on the people of Judah. But there was also a problem with how Babylon carried out that judgment and that task. So now the courtroom drama actually switches. And the people are accusing God and saying, God, it was really bad. And God then says, all right, let's talk about that for a minute. I'm actually going to put Babylon in the dock now. And let's talk about this. And God actually has an accusation for Babylon in Isaiah chapter 47, verse 6. God says to Babylon, listen. I gave you a task. It was a disciplinary task, but you went way overboard. You made it into a punitive task. God says, I was angry with my chosen people, and I punished them by letting them fall into your hands. Interesting language. But you, Babylon, you showed no mercy. You oppressed even the elderly. So God says, yeah, I I did. I permitted Assyria to come against you, and then Babylon to come against you because of your violation of the known terms of the covenant. But along the way, those two nations, everything that they did was not a blanket sort of okay for what they did. They took it too far. They stepped out of line. They were offside. And see, this brings us to our second sidebar in the courtroom drama. And it's a sidebar on the topic of causality. So looking at God's judgment on Babylon, we can say this. That the presence of something in our lives doesn't mean that God put it there. So here's where we want to do thinking carefully about causality. Just because God's judgment was executed by Babylon on the people of Judah, we'd want to make a distinction between what God allows and what God directly causes. So the presence of of something in our lives doesn't automatically mean that God put it there. Sometimes God allows things into our lives, but isn't actively the causing agent of those things. Think again about the book of Job. Satan approaches God and ask for permission or an allowance to test Job. And God permits it, but also puts limits on it and says, you can do that, but I'm going to tell you, your authority is limited. Don't overstep that. Look at the language of Isaiah chapter 42, verse 24, where God says this, who was it that allowed Israel to be robbed and hurt? It was God. But not all that happened to them was what God desired for them to experience. So just because they had a very um, cataclysmic experience of God's uh, judgment poured out on them because of the Babylonians who invaded them, 
God says, hold on. I gave them an assignment to take over your city. I didn't tell them to burn all your houses down and drag you guys out. I just gave them an assignment. And they took it way overboard. So now they're guilty as well. So then God says to, to Babylon, you know what? I'm now bringing judgment on you because you took this overboard. I gave you an assignment and this is inappropriate. And so God actually raises up another world power in this very short period of time from Assyria to Babylon. Now God raises up the nation of Persia and says, Persia, free reign, go get Babylon. They were way offside in what they did to my people and other nations around. So this is your new task. Go and capture them. And God raises them up. Because also remember, if we read the prophet Jeremiah, God has promised his people that they will not be in captivity forever. He's actually told them they'll be there for just over one generation. And because of his love and tender care, he was going to send them a deliverer, a rescuer. Now, I don't know who they thought or what they thought that deliverer or rescuer was, but it surprises them because if you take your Bible and turn to Isaiah 45, God actually answers the question and says, uh, I will tell you who the deliverer and the anointed one, the chosen one is that's coming. Uh, he's actually a king by the name of Cyrus, who is a Persian. And this is what the Lord says to Cyrus, his anointed one, whose right hand, this language again, he will empower. Before him, mighty kings will be paralyzed with fear. Fortress gates will be opened, never to shut again. This is what the Lord says. I will go before you, Cyrus. I will level the mountains. I will smash down gates of bronze, cut through bars of iron. I will give you treasures hidden in the darkness, secret riches. And I will do this so that you may know that I am the Lord the God of Israel, who calls you by name. And why have I called you for this work? Why did I call you by my name, by name rather, when you did not know me? It was for the sake of my servant Jacob, for Israel, my chosen one, because I am the Lord, there is no other God. So Cyrus, yes, I have equipped you for battle, though you don't even know me. And I have done it so all the world from the east to the west will know there is no other God other than me. I am the Lord. There is no other. I create light and make darkness. I send good times and bad times. I, the Lord, am the one who does these things. Cyrus is God's instrument used for his purposes. And God's people think to themselves, this is blowing our circuits. How could God use a pagan king to accomplish his will and purposes? But see, God does all kinds of things that are confusing to us. Some people in our day and time have a difficulty believing that God could use government to do anything good, let alone a government left of center. But God can use people to accomplish aspects of his will. God may be able to redeem and aspects of parts of what's going on in the world for his purposes. Think about what's transpiring and has been transpiring now for the last five and a half years in the nation of Syria and the surrounding nations. We look at it and think, how in the world, what's going on over there? Some of what's happening there is God dispersing people to places like here so that we'll be ready to welcome a family from Syria and many other places in Canada. And so that's something that's you know, actively, God is working to redeem those things and purposes. And so that's a way in which you might want to partner with God in that and be ready to live out 
a life of obedience. And you can do that even before the Syrian family that the Jericho uh, 6 is sponsoring gets here. You can talk to Nigel. There's lots of opportunities for you to be a part of God's redemptive work in that. God can use the bad stuff that happens in your life, but it doesn't mean that God caused it or put it there. Again, some of the hurt and pain can be as a result of our own choices or rebellion. Some of it's just the stuff of life happening or the way in which things transpire. And so we need to be careful about what we blame God for or what we attempt to hold him account for. Because the people in Isaiah's they wanted to hold God accountable for all of the bad things happening in the world and to them in particular. And sometimes we get into this type of thinking and then we fall into the third charge that the people make against God. They say, well, if that's true and God's allowed all of these bad things, then God is just totally absent and he's forsaken us and he's abandoned us and God doesn't even care. He's like set the world up and just left it to run and so God, we are accusing you of abandoning and forsaking us. I mean, this Cyrus guy, he hasn't even shown up yet to rescue us. God, you're slow at keeping your promises and God actually has a specific rebuttal to this charge. Look with me at Isaiah chapter 49 verses 14 to 16. Oh yes, Jerusalem says, the Lord has deserted us. The Lord has forgotten us. And God says to them, never can a mother forget her nursing child. Can she feel no love for the child that she has born? Even if that were possible, I would not forget you. You see, I have written my name, written your name on the palms of my hands. Always in my mind, says God, is a picture of Jerusalem's walls in ruin. And the tenderness and the compassion that comes through time and time and time again from chapters 40 to chapter 66 is the overriding theme of these chapters. This picture of a parent who can't give up longing and looking for a child to come home. It's that um, picture that is given to us in Luke's gospel in chapter 15, the picture of the parable of the lost sons, which is really about the father and how the father feels and acts. That here and in other places in the Bible, we learn that God's hiddenness does not imply his absence. This is the third sidebar for us. It's an element of mystery that just because God is hidden and his activity in the world is hidden from our eyes does not imply that he is absent. Think about Joseph, sold into slavery, horrible events in his life, wronged at every turn by his own family. Or someone like Ruth, facing the death of her husband, and then famine, and then displacement to a new location with no supportive relationship. Or the book of Esther, who doesn't even in the book of Esther mention the name of God, but written large over the stories and over these stories and over your life and mine is the truth that just because we cannot see God's presence does not give us license to say that he is absent. Because God says his promises to us. Hebrews chapter 13, God has said, I will never fail you. I will never abandon you. So you can say with confidence, the Lord is my helper. I will have no fear. 
Does it mean bad things won't happen to you? No, but you can say with confidence that the Lord is still our helper. Because look at the critique that comes in Isaiah chapter 45, verse 9. God pulls no punches and says this. Listen, what sorrow awaits those who argue with their creator? Does a clay pot argue with its maker? Does the clay dispute the one who shapes it, saying, stop, stop, you're doing it wrong? Does the pot exclaim, oh, come on, how clumsy can you be? Or switching metaphors in verse 10 of Isaiah 45. How terrible it would be if a, if a child or if a newborn baby said to its father, yeah, why was I born? Or if it said to its mother, come on, why did you make me this way? This is what the Lord says. The Holy One of Israel and your Creator, verse 11. Do you question what I do for my children? Do you give me orders about the work of my hands? I am the one who made the earth and created people to live in it. With my hands, I stretched out the heavens. All of the stars are summoned at my command. I will raise up Cyrus to fulfill my righteous purpose. I will guide his actions. He will restore my city. He will actually pay for it. He will free my captive people. He won't seek a reward. I, the Lord of heaven's armies, have spoken. And see, it's here that we find our final sidebar on approaching God. And it's important for us to remember When we approach God, there is a categorical difference between honest inquiry and arrogant interrogation. See, all through the scriptures, people come to God with questions, doubts, fears, wrestling, and never once are people critiqued or slapped on the wrist for coming with an authentic search for answers, never rebuked. Think about the Psalms, how many of them say, God, why is this happening? What's going on? But it's an honest inquiry. Our challenges and my challenges, I can cross over so quickly from honest inquiry to arrogant interrogation. God, I demand an answer as to why this is happening. Honest inquiry is welcomed. It's welcomed here at Jericho. If you're here today with doubts, we welcome you. This is a place that you don't have to have it all together, have it figured out. It's a place where honest inquiry is wonderfully warmly welcomed here. You don't have to figure it all out or feel like, oh, all these other people seem to have answers for everything. I don't, I'm even starting to stumble on my questions. You don't have to have it all together to hang out here. But see, there's a difference in a relationship with God between making an honest inquiry of God and saying, God, I'm wrestling with this. Or arrogant interrogation. Again, I think Tim Keller puts it well in his book. He says this, We do not know the reason that God ultimately allows evil and suffering to continue or why it's so random, but now at least we know the reason that it is not. It cannot be that he does not love us. It cannot be that it is because God does not care. See, this is where the text concludes in Isaiah 45, starting in verse 15. says, Truly, O God of Israel, our Savior, you work in mysterious ways. 
See, this is why, friends, trust in God is so hard. Because we don't see all of the answers. We don't have all of the answers that we would like to have. We don't even sometimes see all the pictures to the puzzle. And we live in a messy world. We live in a sin-stained world. Think of all of the people that you know and even some of the circumstances that we're praying for here at Jericho. People longing for a job in a field that they've studied hard for and expertise. And it hasn't come yet. People trusting God in situations that are going sideways and business ventures that are just saying, God, I thought that this is what you wanted us to do. Trusting God for wayward kids that will come home or trusting God to get into a college program that you applied for and just doesn't seem to be happening God works in mysterious ways, and we don't say that lightly or glibly in any way. Because God reminds us at the end of this text and says, I have spoken and sworn in verse 23 by my own name. I have spoken the truth. I will never go back on my word and my promises. One day every knee will bend to me and every tongue will confess allegiance to me. People will declare the Lord is the source. This is what God desires for us. The Lord is is the source of all of my righteousness and my strength. And all who are angry with him will come and will be ashamed. And in the Lord, all of the generations of Israel will be justified. And in him and in him alone will they boast. See, friend, where do you struggle to trust God today? I think about places in my own life and our own circumstances of family. And I just think, oh, this is a tough one because it just is there all the time, how do I bring that to God yet again and ask him to speak into that place? You might have situations that you're struggling to trust God and the team's gonna come and lead us in songs. And these two songs speak of songs of surrender. And they speak about surrender, not in a position of us having all of the answers or having it together, they speak of surrender in the midst of mystery and in the midst of the messiness and the grief of life. And so I would challenge you today. Where is that place that you really have difficulty trusting God? Where is that place of unknown in your own heart where you just come up against it time and time again? Bring it to God and say, God, I am having a hard time trusting you with this. I need you to be faithful to me in the midst of this circumstance. I need to step out in obedience. Surrender again to the God who knows you and who loves you and who's with you.